G'day everyone, welcome back to the Talking Leadership podcast series. Thank you for joining me again. My guest today wears many hats, including being a ghostwriting agency owner, a best-selling author and master connector, a husband, a father, an older brother to younger men, an amateur theologian, a men's physique athlete, a voice mimic and recovering insurance salesman. I really like that last one and I'm going to ask my guests about that one. My guest is a first-generation Spanish-speaking immigrant to the US with African heritage and Middle Eastern, Middle East combat experience. He's lived in five different countries and speaks two languages and holds three passports. He does one thing well and that's communicate with people. When he isn't writing content for clients, you're most likely to find him speaking and building relationships for his network. Can I welcome to the podcast, Paul Edwards. How are you, Paul? Eric, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm doing great and I'm uh, honored to be a part of the show. So uh, looking forward to it. Appreciate you being here, mate. So let's start at first principle. So your area of expertise, and I think I've got this correct, is that communication is what drives you. So what is it about the communication process that you find fascinating? It's a broad question. There's a whole bunch of things, but I have a philosophical bent and I hope this doesn't bore anybody to hear this. I think it's fascinating that... Although all living creatures have some degree of communication, if we're talking particularly mammals and all of that, only one uses consonants and only one thinks in abstraction out loud. So an animal, a dog, for example, can voice his enthusiasm or his hostility or his, his self-pity or his, his unhappiness, and he'll do so using primarily vowel sounds. But he'll, you'll never hear him voice his regret for a mistake he made three years ago using complex sentences and words. Not going to happen, right? Nor will he speak excitedly about how, how enthusiastic he is for his future puppies. Uh, it's not even remotely on his mind. He, has, he lacks the capacity to do that. Uh, only we can do that. As such, to me, that indicates an advancement of radical proportions. And along with that goes potential for tremendous things that no other living creature is capable of. So it opens up horizons. And I just say to myself, what's possible when we are really good at, at communicating, both in, in our listening and in our speaking and conveying of ideas? Maybe that's a little bit, sounds a little bit highbrow, but that's the first thing that came to mind. So there you go. In broad terms, to start with, leader communication has many aspects to it. From your experience dealing with leaders in different organizations, different parts of your life, if I had to put this, you know, I'll put this as um, the good, the bad, and the ugly of leader communication. Let's start it at good. Well, what's, what does good leader communication look like? One of the best uh, examples I have of this is a client of mine down in your neck of the woods, as a matter of fact. Uh, I have a couple of clients in Australia. And uh, the thing I love about the Aussie mindset, which is, I, I don't know if this is entirely unique to them. It's just something I, he's not the first person I've observed this with. And I find it much more holistic and thoughtful than maybe the way we do it in America. And that is that he he was just very, very attentive to how his message could could be interpreted. Not that he wanted to shy away from anything. You know, if he had to talk about a difficult subject, he would. He was circumspect about it. He was, he would think, he would, he would do a, a really, make a really sincere effort to put himself in the shoes of the receiver of that message. 
I'm not saying no Americans do that. I'm just saying we can be a little bit more direct and blunt and right to it and just let it out before we think about it, right? And I'm not that way. I've learned, I've made that mistake enough times and had it blow up in my face. I'm like, I'm not going to communicate like that if I don't have to. So we had a wonderful relationship working around what are all the ways that we can try and steer this message so that it, it is, it's absolutely true. It's, a, it's authentic, but it's also considerate of you know, of susceptibilities that people have if you word things one way versus word them another. And I think at the core, like if that's what's on a leader's heart when they're when they're thinking of communication, they can be forgiven a lot more for mistakes they might make. Because the other thing I'll tell you is like the good, the bad, and the ugly can often be the same thing, right? <laughs> it can be exactly the same phrase. It's just there's, you know, 2000 different recipients and half of them said, yep, I totally get it. And the other half are like, uh, you know, there's portions of people who, who range from I don't understand to I'm offended. Thank you for that. The interesting part of that is once the message is out in the world, you don't have much control over whether you cause offense or not. I think where you have a degree of control is that if you've crafted your message as best you can, you've been attentive to what you're saying, and you've done everything you can to deliver a considered thought. If people still take offense for one reason or another, people's subjective view of what you're saying is beyond your control because by the by its very nature being a subjective take on something is it's it's your unique view of it so i i feel sorry when people when people have communication issues or something blows up in their face because a lot of the times at least in my experiences it, it hasn't been done in bad faith it's just potentially been expressed in ineloquently or it's been expressed very eloquently but there's some people would consider there's a tone when something is delivered and i find that fascinating when people oh, I listen to that and just the undercurrent of what was said and i'm like unless it was said out loud how do you know what the undertone is if it's not expressed? And I have views on that that I, I won't share here because the, I, don't, I don't want to get into the politics of communication, but enough to say that I think most leaders do their best to get out what they want done. Now, having said that, I'll get your views on this if I can, Paul. Often looking at bad communication is a hindsight thing after the fact when things have gone wrong rather than pre something going wrong. Do you, do you find that in your travels that that is the case? Most of the time, though, not for, not for the reasons one might think, you know, it's, it's, you can, you can look at that simplistically and say that people just blurted stuff out, right. And they don't realize it until the end. I think it's a little bit more complex than that. And what I mean is, particularly since we deal with the written word versus the spoken, right? I've pointed out to people that part of the problem with writing is, number one, you lose all of the forgiveness that you get for incorrect syntax and grammar and arrangement of the words and run-on sentences and blah, 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 right? So, so you can have a perfectly airtight, clean message that doesn't offend a single soul, but still throw a bunch of readers off into what is this person talking about? Because you can't shut up in print, right? You can't, you don't know when to, tr to clip your sentence off and put a period or a paragraph and move on to the next thing. So it's not just a matter of, uh, you know, being sensitive to interpretation. It's also a matter of being sensitive to the format that you're using. You know, you and I can see each other on video right now. I don't know if you release a video of this or not, or if you just do the audio, but there you go. There's an example, right? People can hear what we're saying. And I, and I would argue that podcast is one of the greatest formats of that because you take the pictures out of it and now 
you 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 can paint paint pictures in people's minds. But on the other hand, they might be surprised when they if they actually got to see the video footage of you and I talking, they might hear my voice and and picture somebody who looks and emotes facially very different from what they heard on the show. And so you have to be cognizant of that. You know, there's like and then I've done I've I've appeared on TV, right? And there it's all about we're going to ask you these five questions in these five minutes and you better have answers for them that are 30 seconds or less. And everything that we d- we talked about in that TV interview was absolutely true to the content I was promoting, but I had nothing like the time I have on a show like this to extrapolate it and explain it. And so there it's brevity is the soul of wit. And how do you communicate a paragraph's worth of content in a single sentence? Just, it's just so much, there's just so much more detail, detail to it than say or don't say. I guess one thing that I've found in my travels is the, the longer you're in the world of work or you're in a leadership role in particular that you build skill sets around better ways of communicating. But I, I have to say, I think old habits die hard because I, I, I think most of the people I've met in that are, that I would consider are, are, are highly effective leaders still have issues around listening and then being able to summarize back what they've heard. And I, I really believe it's a human people humans have a problem with this is that you hear what you want to hear and you filter out the stuff that is not true for you and that can have problems i guess because if if you're in the role of leadership often and i've heard this through the guests that i've spoken to and i'd love to get your view on this is that leadership is about people issues it's not about getting things done processes like in management it's about people and when you're dealing with a team you have to accept i think in some critical ways that these are people with families and issues and problems and when you get into the personal life of employees in your team, then the sensitivities around communication come to the fore. And I think from experience, the best leaders I've met are 80% listeners and 20% talkers because they want to help the person, but not be interfering to the degree that is that is potentially unprofessional. Is, does that ring true for you, Paul? Yeah. What I was thinking of there the whole time is that, uh, well, you know, there, there is the subset there of when you're in that role, your biggest currency is not money, right? If it were, we wouldn't be having a great resignation from everything I've heard that's happening in Australia, just like it is in the US. It's so it's so it's clearly not currency. If money was the only problem, you could just raise everybody's pay and everybody be hunky-dory, but people are leaving, right? What are they leaving about? Well, they're leaving because there's a low trust environment. So I don't want to discount the importance of, of that. But I, I one thing that occurred to me before you started mentioning all of the interpersonal dynamics of the families of people you're leading is also that leadership to me is uh, there's a book called The Power of Agreement that I've heard about. And that, that's such a simple principle. If you think about it, when someone's communicating to you and you're in the, you're in the role of the listener to gain agreement, and yet we don't use it. And I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. When my sons who are 13 and 11 and are obsessed with computer games and video games, when they get home this afternoon, they know they're going to be peppered with questions, right? Because every day dad says, okay, so what are your first priorities when you get home? And they, you know, they roll their eyes, oh, do my homework, right? do the chores, go play outside. I was like, yeah, okay, well, what's the bottom of the list? Playing computer games. I've learned that if I don't get that agreement from them and I just tell them no video games and go play outside, eh, they might do it or they might not. So they trust me, but I'm not getting agreement from them. When I get agreement from them and then they try to go ahead and play anyway, and I say, uh, 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 you gave me your word, they back off immediately. Now, not all conversations, especially at work, are, are 
coercive or disciplinary like that. But the point is we could get an awful lot more agreement if we would say things like, here's what, I, here's what you said to me and here's what I hear. Am I hearing this right? Because if they say, yes, you're hearing it right, you're, you're hitting, it on the hitting the nail on the head, then you're like, we have agreement. I didn't misinterpret you. I didn't take what you said out of context or skip over or ignore it or you know say I'd heard it, but, um, but I was going to do what I wanted to anyway, right? It's, it's all those alternatives that are invisible. We get that agreement. Now you're building a team because you're getting two or more on the same page about an issue to tackle it going forward. In addition, when you create those kind of conversations as a, as a matter of routine, then the other parts of it that you're, that you're referencing there, family, relationships, dynamics, interpersonal relationships at work, all of the things that can go wrong and do go wrong, you're going to be in a much more trusted position as a leader because you actually listen and they have a track record of you listening. It's not just you listened once. It's this is the this guy listens to me every day and asks questions and makes sure and makes sure he understands me. So I'm I'm going on a bit here, but I, that's those are the things that came to my mind when you asked that question. In the 160 odd plus conversations that I've had doing this, doing these conversations, that it's simple to build trust, but you have to be consistent in how you do it and being able to be a build that that comes from being able to listen listen to what's happening and not necessarily say, well, I've heard you, but I don't give a crap. This is what we're going to do anyway. I, I think if you're going to get build, sorry, not get build respect and trust and uh, empower your people, then you've got to try and meet them halfway if you can. Now that's easier said than done, but if leadership is an art form and I, I, in, in some ways I believe that it is, you've got to be able to come to the table that way. And the, the feeder to that for me is being in the leadership role, a reflective practitioner and to be good at being reflective in your leadership style is to say, do I listen? Do I bother to listen to what my team is saying? And then when I do, how do I try and meet people in the middle so that we can get an outcome that we need to get? And it, it gets complicated and, and workplaces are different, but I think at the core, this, this idea of being able to listen is an important one. So bad leader communication, can you give me an example without giving me a name, obviously, of a time where you've seen something go catastrophically wrong and you're like, mm, this could have been avoided or wow, this this was going to be a train wreck from the start. Have you, have you seen that, Paul? Oh, yeah. I'll give you the name. He's me. I mean, that's that's the thing is like, you know, I, I very, so, I mean, I, there's, there could be an exception to this. I don't believe great communicators are born. I believe they're made over years and years of making mistakes. There's, you know, there's the obvious fodder of politics and Hollywood and and all of that. And those are big communication-based industries. I could I could point to any number of things out of there. But I think I can speak most authoritatively from my own experience. One thing that I began to read, I'll, I'll give a mild one here so that nobody thinks like, like this, what's the matter with this guy? <laughs> I used to be big on Facebook. Like I was building a big uh, personal brand on Facebook. I was in the insurance business, right? And so I was selling car and home insurance and all of that. At first, it, it like it really caught on. It was just the right time. Everybody was finally starting to get into like Facebook is just a part of life. It's 2014 or so. And I went and I had a professional photographer do a photo shoot with me in the city of Bellevue, which is right by Seattle. And it's the high rises, you know, like a Beverly Hills type of thing of Seattle. And I started posting these pictures on, on Facebook and people loved them. It was like people were clicking and responding to the brand. It was authentic to me. It was the kind of person I was and they loved him. Over time though, I got carried away with it. I just, I just started doing it too much. 
so that people like they saw it, they liked it, but they didn't interact with it. And so as a real simple example of a good communication strategy gone wrong as is um, overdoing it to the point, you know, there's a, there's a big question of how often do you communicate? How often do you post? How often do you how much can your audience take before you become white noise to them? The quintessential email inbox problem if you're in the email marketing is how frequently do I mail my list? Well, some people mail them every day and they get results every day. And other people, I'm only mailing them once a month. Oddly enough, I think some of the best questions you can ask in response to, a, to things like this are the questions of journalists, which is who, what, where, when, why, and how, but you use them in a different way. So it's not not necessarily who are the people in the story, it's who is my customer or who is my recipient? Who is my audience, right? Who are they? What do I know about them? Why am I writing this message? What's the motive behind it? Where are they most likely to be open to receiving the message? Are they more likely to engage with you on TikTok, but you're over here trying to make it happen on Pinterest and nobody's paying attention? Will they be more likely to receive an email from you, but you're over here trying to do cold calls? You know, I just took those same questions and instead of using it to, to tell a story, I used it to ask a bunch of intelligent questions about before that I always ask before I send the message, who's the recipient and what's important to them. And when, you know, how frequently, when is not like, what was the date? When is, when do I mail them? How often do I message, uh, communicate with them? So I've had that problem at a very much uh, simpler level, not not to to what you've just explained here, is when I first started doing what I'm doing, I was just posting conversations as quickly as I could get them edited and get them out. I had no structure. And then uh, someone who helped build my logo said to me, oh, reaching some good people, interesting conversation. Why don't you do it monthly or, or fortnightly or every week? I went, does that matter? He goes, for the same reasons you just said, why would you want to inundate people, get them wanting to hear more of the conversation and sort of almost, I think he used the word drip feed. So once a week, mm -hmm. if that's what you want to do, then do it. And so I've used the once a week model. It's created pressures for me now to make sure I can deliver weekly. And I've had a few stuff ups along the way, but I think the consistency now is building a following and people are wanting to engage, not necessarily with what Eric Perez thinks of the world of leadership, but the guests that I can get um, to, to talk to me. And that, that was my aim from the start, but it took someone who had no connection to what I was doing with the podcasting to just make this very simple observation about how I was communicating and you know you beat yourself up a little bit and go oh shit why didn't I think of that because your headspace wasn't there and, and the one question I didn't ask was who is my audience and how often should I be engaging uh, with them so yeah point point well made now to bring this back a little bit to leadership do you believe from your experiences Paul that communication is one of the fundamental leadership capabilities yeah, I mean, I, I hesitate, but I'd say it's it's probably the um, leadership capability, preeminent at least. And and for for another example's sake, I remember this story. I've heard this from a mentor of mine. You know, back you to go wind the clock back to two thousand eight, two thousand nine, the big stock market crash and all of that. And one of the big companies that was at the core, at the center of it in the states here was a company called Lehman Brothers. And I may be getting these facts mixed up. It may have been another company, but I'm, I feel like it was Lehman Brothers. And Lehman Brothers reached out to Warren Buffett, whom most everybody's heard of, to help them rescue. Now, Buffett's a rich man, but he doesn't have the kind of capital you need to, to single-handedly bail out a company of that size. So it can't be that they were, hope, they were hoping Buffett would, be, would feel like 
digging into his deep pockets to rescue a company that was already going under, right? So why are they going to him? And of course, if you stop and think about it, could his company take them over? Berkshire Hathaway, could they come in and buy out the company? I don't know, maybe. But he, but Buffett's not stupid. He's not going to take over an investment that's already crashing, right? Now, certainly not by himself, not, not just Berkshire Hathaway. What they're instead relying on is the reputation that he has built over decades of communicating very, very well and persuasively with confidence and not just confidence, but actual you know, financial literacy to back it up, to show convincingly that the numbers will work out if we work together. He knows how to do that. He spends four to six hours a day reading financial statements. He's, he's absolutely as literate as you can be in them. And he knows he can look at those key performance indicators and say, this company's got going to make it or it's not. He'd probably do it in a fraction of the time it would take you and I to do it. But he has the ability to communicate that to be, he has the ability and he's very, very consistent and very reliable to follow through on what he says he's going to do. And following through on what you say you're going to do, their actions is also a form of communication. Just because it's not verbal doesn't mean it's not, it's not communication. You bring that back to you're in a leadership position. Not everything you're doing is verbal. It doesn't mean it's not communication. And if, you're ver if your verbal communication is in one place and your physical nonverbal communication is in another, guess what? You're a sub, you're a sub, uh, suboptimal communicator and the people around you are going to sense that whether they work under you parallel to you above you partner with you they're going to sense his word means one thing his actions say another his word means one thing his tone means another his body language is one thing right so i, I mean everything else is just the mechanical right if you happen to be swinging a golf club while you're communicating big whoop you know uh, if you happen to be uh, running numbers while you're communicating or laying bricks or whatever it doesn't matter the point is as a leader you're always communicating something and the question is are you communicating it well in thought word and deed roadblocks to better communication what do you think are the top if there's a top three or four roadblocks to being a better communicator well certainly poor levels of self-awareness is a big one and um you you know the the way leadership is evolving these days you almost say how can people with poor self-awareness be getting to the top uh, getting to the positions of leadership but they get there all the time you know there's it happens it's not um if it weren't the case, I think uh, we wouldn't have anything like the um, kind of social societal upheaval we're having against leadership in so many areas of life. So there's a um, there's a tone deafness to a lot of leaders. And, you know, I was thinking about this yesterday. I was thinking like we have people I don't know if this is the case in Australia and in the States, especially at the national level. We have people in senior leadership in politics who have been there for five decades and you're like, doesn't it? I mean, what what's the what's the rub there? Why why aren't you know why don't we have a turnover? Why don't we have a changing of the guard? And there's all kinds of reasons for it. One of the reasons I think is that there's just too it's it's too easy. It's too much fun. It's too much attention that you don't have to work for. Now I'm not trying to get into talking politics here. I'm just taking that example and saying, whenever you get into a leadership role, and I've been in a few of them, and I've even been seduced by a few of them, it's very, very easy to think I'm the man now, and people just come to me for the answers. And so life is good, and I don't have to do any work, and I'm just going to tell people what to do, and off they go, right? And you know, it doesn't quite work that way. Not, not if you really care. Like if you really, like if you care an ounce about the people that are working uh, to support you or better better stated that you're working to support. It's harder work. It's not as, it may be not as laborious. It may be not as tedious, 
but it is hard. Uh, it's very difficult to maintain a discipline of self-awareness and listening and not rushing to judgment and not uh, blowing your top when people mess things up and not blaming them when you failed to communicate properly. I'll give you an example of that. Uh, recently, I lost a client that I didn't want to lose. And at first, the very first complaints that I got were around missteps that people on my team had made. But I've been in this business long enough to know that that's not really the problem, right? It's not a matter of, well, there was a typo here. Like we never make typo mistakes because we have three levels of editing, but we, made, we were making them here. But that's not the problem. The problem is not the typos, right? Typos can be fixed. Typos can be reported. Hey, there's a couple of typos, no big whoop, right? The real problem was that I, in the buildup to this, had not really taken enough time to understand how much of a priority it was to this client to see certain indicators of growth from the content we were producing for him. And when he didn't see those levels, the other things like the typos and the missteps here and there just became added evidence for him to build his case that it wasn't worth continuing with us. And that's a failure of leadership. That's not a failure of the team. Even though they did make, yes, they did make technical mistakes here and there. I didn't even talk to them about it. I was like, don't worry about whatever mistakes you made. We have systems to, to prevent us from doing that. The real problem that needs to be fixed here is me because I took on this client and I didn't get, a, I didn't get my head wrapped fully around what his expectations were. And I took my hands off the wheel too soon. Not your fault. Buck stops here. My problem. That's not typical, Paul. Um, it's good to hear that you did what you did because you could have easily turned around and said, this was the team's fault. Nothing to see here with me. And um, I've seen that happen. I've been on the, receive, on the receiving end of that when something's gone wrong. And your first reaction is not to react because you want to keep your job. But I had an incident early in my career where I did react and there was an explosive interaction between myself and my boss that led to language that would have made construction workers sort of stop and take notice. And um, it was unprofessional of me as much as some might argue is unprofessional of the person who was leading me at the time. But being able to, to cop it on the chin and admit that you're wrong is not something that comes naturally to a lot of people. And if you're in a leadership role, mm. if you're not a reflective practitioner, you won't go to the question, was it me? I think that should be the top of the list. What did I do to enable the situation? And then you kind of work down that pyramid as opposed to starting down the bottom to look at uh, people in your team to shift the blame to because there's nothing more corrosive in my mind to start undermining the confidence of the people that you rely on to make your business success successful. It's, it's poison. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And plus, like, 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 I, like I said, right, if this if the situation uh, from a from a growth and profit standpoint had been reversed and this and every month he was you know getting more followers more sales more more appointments and typos are coming in he probably wouldn't have even noticed it like, oh, there was a typo in this post, but look, I gained 50 followers off of it. Who gives a rip, right? I'm not even going to mention it, but it's yeah. because the, it was the double negative, right? Which yeah. started with me because I hadn't done my homework. And so true, true you, you just have to, you, yeah, you have yeah. to, you, you got to be, I mean, yes, technical errors do occur and yes, we have to fix them, but that's not the problem, especially for, from a leadership perspective, you've always got to be asking the question. And I have a, I even have an ethos for this in our agency. I say, I say it to all of my team because they're all independent contractors. So I don't have any employees. And so I'm, I'm trying to teach them this because they're in business for themselves. But really when this is my agency. So for, for me, I, I have, I have the saying, I am always at least 1% responsible. Even if you hold 99% and I only hold one, I do not back away from my one percentage of responsibility. Now I'm not, I'm never 1%. It's usually me a hundred percent, but right. the point is you yourself are hundred percent responsible. If we are not 
growing and improving and everybody's making more money and getting better and 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 all that kind of thing, then I have a role to play. I have I I own 50% of that for which I am 100% responsible. And if I am down to 47% operational and you are giving uh, excuse me, if I'm down to like 80% of my 50% right? Everybody listening on the podcast getting confused here. In other words, if I'm not doing so well, it's going to affect you, right? As the partner, it's going to affect the client. And so I'm like, I'm never totally free of responsibility, particularly since I'm the senior leader. If you're not thinking about the business as you and the team, then you, you'll run into problems and, and taking ownership of mistakes. And, and you can grow and learn from mistakes. Obviously, this issue that you raised, the loss of a client, that's taught you some fundamental lessons, but it's also a good indicator for your staff that you've got their back. It wasn't about them. There's street cred and good faith building that you probably don't realize, but it's there because they've seen it now. And it's, I don't think that's a common thing. And so uh, more power to you and hopefully more leaders learn from that as a lesson on how to, how to deal with teams. So Paul, final question here, and you're probably sick of being asked this and I'm sick of asking it, but we're in the world that we're in. Your view of, your, your view of communication as a leader capability pre-COVID and during COVID, do you think there's been a change? Have, and, and why I ask this is the question that's come up from others to me on this and what do I think? And I, I really don't have my, my gray matter around this as much as I should, but I am thinking about it is has the COVID process exposed bad leaders and bad communicators? Yeah. Would it be a, in a pronounced way? Well, I mean, it's, it's coinciding with the great resignation and you can say that's for any number of reasons. You can't leave bad leadership out of it is all I'm saying. It's part of the equation there. But then there's so many other things, you know, that are the marketplace that are gradually just becoming a part of life. And I think in a way where the physical workforce world, the the huge swaths of the uh, global marketplace that could, that didn't have to really get involved in on anything online, suddenly had to get involved in everything online. And then began to see, oh, there's this entire world of having a business and, you know, the, the stuff that guys like you and I were, were noticing well before 2020. Now everybody's seeing it because they're, they're just online all the time and they're exposed to it. And they're, you know, we, I was using Zoom and doing digital meetings 2016, 2017, but uh, a lot of people still weren't. Well, now even my accountant will do a meeting on Zoom, right? So like technologically, it's pushed a lot of people in a lot of directions. Spiritually, and by spiritually, I don't mean religious. I just mean the invisible, all of the things that make us human distinct from animals and communication being a huge part of that. Spiritually, I think COVID has exposed how everybody everybody's dark side in a lot of ways. Because all of the stuff that we used to use to, to uh, you know, keep ourselves busy and distracted suddenly went out the window. And so, you know, you hear these terrible stories about how divorce rates went through the roof and cases of um, domestic violence and all that went through the roof. Well, prior to that, we had all sorts of things just to keep us busy and work to keep us separate. And and so it was, it was tolerable. Then we're now we're living in close proximity to each other 24 hours a day, not for me, but for plenty of people. So I think it, it, it definitely, it definitely did in a way, in, in the sense that if, if you're already not paying much attention to being a good communicator with your, just take your family, right? Your, your spouse, your children, and then you 10x the amount of time you're spending around them, then you're just going to be a 
a, a bad communicator more often than you normally are. We all, we all come at that differently. I've, I've been in a home office for the last seven years. So the working from home bit never really phased me. So working from home wasn't a new thing for me. I, I, it didn't impact me in the same way. But for the friends and colleagues that I've got, family that are used to being out and are energized by people. So if I go back to that introvert, extrovert uh, continuum, I'm definitely on the introverted side of things. And so my energy comes from myself to get energized. I I go into deep thought and that gets me through whatever the crap I need to get through to get started. Whereas others, and you probably know these people as well, maybe you consider yourself an extrovert, you're energized. And I'm saying this generically that people, some people are energized by others. And when you take that away, it's like there's been a massive cycle psychological uh, research project here that no one's led and we're, we're all little test cases for how this thing was going to play out and you make an interesting uh, observation that is probably going to get researched at some point around just how important is the world of work to keeping society functioning in a workable way so that people aren't divorcing families aren't breaking down in societies and going to shit it's it's an interesting it's well above my pay grade but it's it's a um an insightful observation paul so look i appreciate your time and before we go just again to reiterate to the listeners paul edwards is the ceo and founder of the reluctant thought leader so before we go paul can you give us some a bit of background to what you do in that role so over to you mate Yeah, thanks for that, uh, Eric. And the short and sweet is that uh, we help um, speakers, coaches, consultants, executives, entrepreneurs, business leaders. We help them publish content books by mainly by by ghostwriting. So we so we assist them. I also do author coaching, but we assist them in producing the content that they publish on their blog or on social media or in a book, or in many cases, collateral that they publish as content within their companies, right? If they're communicating to employees and that kind of thing. And, um, but well, what I want to emphasize though, is that uh, we, yes, we do that, but we do it for a very particular subset of people. And they're, they're not unified, united, I should say, by any particular industry so much as they are by a, a certain mindset, a certain set of values. And they're what I call people builders. And so if you are a personal professional development junkie, right, the type of person who wants to live in constant growth mode, who cares deeply about impacting, positively impacting everybody you come in contact with, that's our kind of person. That's that's who gravitates towards our our agency and our and our model. I appreciate that, Paul. So what I'll do is I'll put a link to your website and to your profile on LinkedIn so people can do a more deep dive into what it is that you do. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. It was great to be here. No worries. So for those listening, this has been Talking Leadership. I've been speaking to Paul Edwards. Thank you again for your time and we'll catch everyone on the next podcast.